0: we we'll are turning your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. Of course, we're continuing our study of the history of the nation of Israel. We're looking at the time of the kings. We're looking at the third king, Solomon. Let me just give you an idea. Roman, uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 is a really long chapter. It's so 60-something, uh, 66 verses. We won't get all of that, of course, today. But we're going to be going through it fairly quickly. Chapter 8, chapter 9, 10, and 11. Uh, at chapter 11, that's the end of Solomon. He dies. And so we're going to stop there because we're just going through the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and and uh, Solomon. And after that, we're going to start the book of Revelation. So that should be pretty interesting, I think, with uh, all the things going on in the world and what's happening. Uh, that we need to know and understand the end times. What's next? What's God doing? What's going to be happening? And uh, the book of Revelation, the Revel- it's not Revelations, it's the Revelation, and it is the information that God sent to J- John, who wrote it down, and and we're going to see some incredible things there. It'll take a while to go through it. I think it'll be kind of exciting. We're going to be looking at end-time events that the book of Revelation talks about the end times. We're going to be able to put together some things for you. So back to 1 Kings, we're looking at the life of Solomon. We're seeing key events in his life, but probably the, the key event in his life is this, the building of the temple, the place where God would dwell among his people. This is Solomon's life work. I mean, when you think about Solomon, the richest man, the wisest man who ever lived in all those things, but his goal, his goal in life, was to build the temple. The temple was the place that God would dwell among his people. We realized that it took seven years to build the temple. Thousands of workers, 180,000 Jewish people, uh, Jews were working, not counting anybody else. And so this morning we're going to see the bringing up of the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk more about that. What is the Ark? How does it fit? This is the final preparation before the dedication of the temple. And we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. We'll see how these things flow together. As we look at this, we want to review the design and the meaning of the temple. We're going to talk about that just briefly. We're going to focus on the ark for just a little bit, worship and majesty of God. And then we're going to talk about leadership and praying for our leadership because leaders are in this passage and we think about the leaders of the church. There's an old saying that if it's worth doing, it's just worth doing right. And some people say things like, well, if you don't do it right the first time, you're going to have time to do it right the second time. There are certain things that when you do them, you need to do them the right way, whether it's driving a car, whether it's preparing food. You know, if you prepare it the wrong way, people could get sick. And, and then even if I think a college student said, they would tell you to turn in papers and projects and things, and, and do you, did you have the right bibliography? How about the footnotes or the endnotes? Everything's got to be done in a certain way. When we look back in the Bible, we find out that the Ark of the Covenant must be carried in a certain way. must be carried in a right way, you might say. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was a box, and we're going to talk more about it later. It was made out of wood, covered over with gold, a golden lid, and the priests were supposed to carry it. We remember a time that King David decided to move the Ark, and he got a cart, he put the Ark up on the cart, and they were traveling with it, and the oxen moved, and the cart shook, and a guy by the name of Uzzah put his hand up to stop it, and he died immediately. And so they stopped right then and they said, wait a minute, we're not doing this right. This morning, when they bring the Ark of the Covenant to the temple, they're going to bring it the right way. The priests are going to carry it, and I think we're going to see some good things. Solomon does it the right way. Let me give you just the outline of the chapter. It's a long chapter. We're not going to get that much this morning. We're just going to actually look at the first 11 verses, and we'll go fairly quickly through that. But that's bringing up the Ark. Solomon gives a big speech. Solomon prays. By the way, the prayer of Solomon in this passage is the longest prayer in the Bible. And we'll, we'll touch on it. And then we see Solomon's blessing and the sacrifices and all those things. So that's all coming. So as we begin, let me remind you of what we're talking about. God told the nation of Israel, when they were in the wilderness, to build a tent. It was called a tabernacle. It had a place out front to offer sacrifices. And then it had a big tent. And in that was a big room called the holy place and a little room called the holy of holies. And they put the Ark of the Covenant in that. It was called the tabernacle because it meant temporary. It's because they moved it around. This is what it looked like. And so they had this, the curtain things all around and then they had the place of sacrifice and the place where you'd wash and then you'd go in a front room and then you'd go in a back room. And the back room is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now they're building a temple and the temple is permanent. It's not gonna move. It's, gig- it, you know, it's big, it's beautiful, it's gold, it's, it's just wild. And so here's uh, the, kind of the directions. You, you, out front was the place of sacrifice, and then you'd come in, and you come in the holy place, and there were lampstands on each side. There were tables of bread on each side. There was a, a, All here was an altar. And then in the back room, yes, that's where they're going to put the Ark of the Covenant. And the best we can tell, this is kind of a pretty good rendition of what we think it might have looked like. Here was the place that they would offer the sacrifices. This is the place they would wash, and they would wash in these little things. And then they would go up the steps, go into the front room, and then, the back room. And by the way, only certain priests could go in the front room. All the priests could hang around out here. People could come out here. The priests could hang out here. Certain priests could go in the front room, and in the back room, only one priest, the high priest, and he could only go once a year. So they're building this big temple to worship God, and that's where God would make himself known. So look at chapter 8, look at verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers... Households of the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. The plan is to get all the leaders together, bring in the families, bring in the leaders, bring in the people, and bring the Ark of the Covenant up. Now, the elders were meant of every tribe of Israel. There were twelve tribes. Actually, there were actually thirteen when you take Joseph's tribes divided into two parts. Each of those tribes had leaders, had older, mature men that oversaw that. Then they were, in in each family, there were leaders as well. They're bringing in these mature men as they get ready to do one of the most important things ever, bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. When you think about the church, church, we have leaders. We have mature men in leadership position. They're called elders and deacons. We want to remember them and pray for them as well. Uh, If you go to the new website, we just got the new website up. There's still some things we're changing around, but it's really good. And you can go into one area, and you can actually go and see the pictures of the men that are elders and deacons in our church. So these are uh, leaders in the church, mature men that God has raised up to do and help the ministry here. So here's what happens. Solomon assembles the elders of the tribes, the leaders of the tribes, and, and then families, and he brings them all together to bring up the ark. And if you notice, it is the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, well, let's talk for a minute. Notice there are three things there the Ark of the Covenant, basically, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the City of the Lord. So, it, listen, it, you see, it's the Ark, the Covenant, and the Lord. Ark is a place of safety, by the way. That's what the word Ark has an idea of meaning. Noah's Ark, you might say, well, why was it called the Ark of the Covenant? Why is it called Noah's Ark? Because it's a place of safety. Uh, at the Ark of the Covenant is where sin and sacrifices were covered and taken care of for the people. The Ark of the Covenant, the covenant was an agreement that God made with people going all the way back to Adam and Eve, up through Abraham, and all the way through Moses, in which God said he would bring a Redeemer and a Savior to the world. And then it's of the Lord. And if you notice, all four capitals, L-O-R-D, which is the personal name of God. It's actually in Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. We pronounce it Yahweh. But whenever you see that, that's the personal name of God. And so when we think about the ark, the covenant, the Lord, when you think about the ark, it's a place of safety. Jesus is our safety. He is the Savior. He's the one who died and rose again. We come to Jesus for salvation. And the ark was a place of the covenant, the agreement that God made with mankind. And then the Lord is the personal name of God. And it's a foreshadow. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. This is the, it's a pretty good rendering of what the ark might have looked like. If you remember, first of all, it is a wooden box covered over with gold. It's made out of wood and gold. The wood represents humanity. The gold represents deity. Jesus is the God-man. And then on the top of this mercy seat, uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the thing called the mercy seat. It was made out of solid gold. It had two cherubim, two angels on there, a cherub. Cherubim is plural. And they had this golden top, and the priest would come in and pour the blood of bulls and goats on top of that once a year to cover the sin of the nation of Israel for a year. So that the Ark of the Covenant is so important, especially to the Jewish people thinking, okay, how do we how do we deal with our sin? Well, the high priest pours the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and we're, our sins are covered for another year. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, let me end this verse when he says... they had to bring it from the city of David, which is Zion. Now, if you know the Bible, you think to yourself, wait a minute, the city of David is Bethlehem. David grew up in Bethlehem because it's called the city of David. Well, that's true. But on the top of the Temple Mount, where they were building the temple, at the southern part of that area, David had built his palace, and had dealt where he was staying and living, and that part became known as the city of David. So they're actually going to take the Ark of the Covenant from where David is living, city of De- and they're going to bring it about a half a mile and bring it up to the temple that they've built and put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. That's what the plan is to do. Now, let's see uh, how they do it. You know, We're going to see they're going to do it right. But look at this. Look at the next verse. All of the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month of El Nathan which is the seventh month. Now, the seventh month, and the Jewish calendar actually begins in like March and April, that's the first month. Seventh month is like our September, October in there. And the seventh month, realize, if you remember when we studied they built the temple, it is 11 months after they completed the building of the temple to bring in the ark there. Almost a year. Our question might be, why would they wait a year to take the Ark of the Covenant from the city of David and bring it to the temple that is built. The answer is we have no idea. We don't know whether they were still getting things ready, whether they, didn't, they said, well, it's not ready yet. We don't know. We don't know why they did this. They brought it in the seventh month. Now, notice it says in the seventh month. In the seventh month, there were three feasts. There was the Feast of Trumpets, which was on the first day of the seventh month. That's the new year. On the 10th day of the seventh month was called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is the day of covering of sin. And then the third one was on the 15th day of the month called the Feast of Tabernacles. It reminded them of when they were in the wilderness. We, we are not told, but toward the end of the passage, not this morning's passage, but the end of the whole passage, it tells us that they celebrated a week and then another week. The Feast of Tabernacles lasts for a week we think that they probably brought it at the Feast of Tabernacles. And and so this is the seventh month they bring it up there. Now watch verse three. Then all the elders of Israel came and the priest took up the ark. Those from the tribe of Levi were to take the ark and they're doing it the right way. Now just remember that that's big. You do it the wrong way, people die. That's what happens. And so you want to do it the right way. And so Solomon is having it done the right way way. Notice verse 4. They brought up the ark of the Lord and of the tent of the meeting and the holy utensils which were in the tent and the priest and the Levites brought them up. Listen, there were all kinds of things connected with the tabernacle and they were bringing a lot of those up with the ark itself. Remember, they had already made all kinds of things. They had made basins to wash in. They had already made lampstands. They made tables. They've done a lot of things, but they're bringing all of these things up. And it says, and Solomon, King Solomon, watch this. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, everybody came, who were assembled to him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen, they could not be counted or numbered. Now, I want you to think about this. They couldn't even count them all. From the time that they got it at the city of David, they pick it up, David's, Solomon is leading the way with the priest and everything, and the people are all there. And as they're going, they're sacrificing animals all the way. And it's not a few animals. It's not 500 animals. It's not 1,000 animals. It's not 10,000 animals. There's so many animals that they're sacrificing that you can't even count them. And they're on the way to bring the ark and put the ark in the temple so many sacrifices let's talk for a minute just about sacrifices just so you understand we all say this oh yeah in the old testament they offered sacrifices in the new testament we don't offer sacrifices what, what we do let's talk about sacrifices for a second there's so many sacrifices in the old testament they had a sacrifice to cover sin there was really a foreshadow of Jesus who was going to come and pay for sin. So they offered some animals to cover up their sin. They offered some sacrifices as praise and worship to God. They offered some sacrifices, which was called a burnt offering, which was you offered an animal, it burned it completely up, and it was like you giving your life to God. They offered a thank offering. You might bring a sacrifice and say, I just wanted to thank God for taking care of me. Sometimes he offered a peace offering. So they had all kind of different sacrifices that they offered. Well, we offer sacrifices today. And you may not think about it, but Romans 12 says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a what? A living sacrifice. So we'll talk more a little bit about that a little bit later. But uh, we see they are offering sacrifices. We have the privilege of offering at least ourselves a sacrifice. There's more. So look what happens. They get there with it. Verse 6. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. Okay, now let me show you this right here. They took the ark, and they had to come up those steps. They went through the front room, got past the curtain, went to the back room, and put the ark of the covenant back there. Now let me tell you something. The priests that carried that, they're carrying it like this. They go into the back room. Those priests said to themselves, this is the only time I'll ever be in this room. And they might say, I'm one of the few people who ever get to be in this room. Because only the high priest could come in there. And there's only one high priest, and he's the high priest until he dies, and then his oldest son becomes high priest. So when they did this, the priest that actually brought that ark in there and set it down, when they left, they knew they would never see it again, ever. You'd you think they probably said, what a privilege I got to be the one to help take the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. You know what you could say? What a privilege God allows you to serve him today. In his strength and his power, what a privilege to serve the living God. It's amazing. Well, notice it said that... um, The priest brought the Ark of the Covenant, verse 6 again, to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the Ark and his poles above. If you remember, Solomon had made these two big angels with wings outstretched, and one touched the wall and then touched the other wing, and then they touched the wing and touched the wall, and then they were going to put the Ark of the Covenant underneath those two big angels. That's the plan. And so they've taken it in there under the wings of two huge angels. They're 15 feet high and their wings stretch out and everything like that. Let me ask you a question. So, what did these angels look like? What did the cherubim look like? Well, when we think of, when you think of an angel, what do people think of when they think of angels? Well, you know, sometimes people say, oh, she looks like an angel. We'll be careful uh, if you say that. And somebody said, oh, they're just cute little angels. That's what angels are. Aren't they the cutest things you've ever seen? What did these angels look like? They look like that. They had four faces. By the way, Cherubim have four faces. They have the face of a man, a lion, an eagle, and an oxen. They're really foreshadows of Jesus himself because Jesus is a man. He's the lion of the king of Judah. He's the servant of the ox, and he's the eagle, the, the perfect God. That's who he is. And so these angels, now I actually think their wings stretched out even further and touched the walls and touched each other and all that. So they had these two giant angels there, and they put the Ark of the Covenant, and you can see that's the Ark of the Covenant down there, and they put that there. So when people think about angels, you know, be careful because they're powerful beings. One angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So angels are very powerful Beans so he goes on and says they they, put the, they spread they put it in uh, the cherubim's wings are spreading over. then verse eight says, But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen in the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. They have been there to this day now i don 't really understand exactly this because they say they, they could be seen, the poles could be seen they didn't did they stick out somehow? did they touch the curtain somehow? I want you to understand everything i 've ever studied about it. The front room was like here, and then here's this curtain, and then here's the back room. And the Ark of the Covenant is in the back of the room. How did they see the poles? Some have said that there was a space like over here, and a priest could look back there and see the poles. Some say the poles are just touching the curtain, and that's how you could see them. It doesn't tell us at all how this works. It just says they could be seen. And it says that they're, they're there to this day. To this day. What day? Well, we know this that this temple was destroyed in 585 BC. We know that Solomon began building the temple at 480 years after they came out of the captivity. This, he started the building of the temple in his fourth year. It took him seven years to build it. So most likely, this is about the year 958 B.C., 958 years before Jesus is ever born. That's most likely when it was. And the writer, and we don't know who wrote 1 Kings or Second Kings. We don't know who wrote 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Most believe that 1 and 2 Kings were written before the captivity and 1 and 2 Chronicles were written after the captivity. So we don't know. All we know is the writer says when he wrote this, the temple was still there and everything was still the way it was. Now, there's something I want to talk about real briefly, fast. Notice verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except two tablets of stone, which Moses put in there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. He says that there was nothing in the ark except two tablets. If you remember, when Moses came down from the mountain, the first time he came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and by the way, Don't picture Charlton Heston and and the big things, okay? We most likely think they might have been round and they could have been held in one hand because the Scripture actually says he came down with the tablets in his hand. It doesn't say hands. It doesn't say he was holding them like this. So we're not sure. It could have been writing in a circle around them on both sides, two different ones. We don't know. He came down and he broke them because they had already broken them. He goes back up and gets More And God writes writes it down again, and he comes down. We know he took those tablets, and he put those tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why does it say that there was nothing in the Ark of the Covenant except two tablets of stone? Why does he say that? Because, and that's the Ark, because in Hebrews 9, verse 4, it says that in the Ark of the Covenant was manna, Aaron's rod, and the tablets... Well, if you remember, when they came in the wilderness, uh, God brought manna every day. Manna is the Hebrew word, what is it? Manna, manna means what is it? When they saw it on the ground, they went, what is it? It was manna. And so they had that till the very end. And then at the very end, they took some manna, put it in a jar, in a bit something, and they put it in the ark. And then when there was a rebellion over Aaron and he was supposed to be the leader and other people said they were going to be the leaders, God said, everybody take a rod, the 12 leaders of each tribe, put your rods down. They came back the next day and all their rods were rods, but Aaron's rod had budded. It had become a almond tree. And so they took his rod and put it in the ark. Now, when they build the the temple, where is the manna and where is the rod that budded? well, no. Some say that when the Philistines stole the ark, if you remember when they stole the ark and they kept it for about eight months, some people say that they probably took that out of there. Who knows? All we know now is when they build the temple, the only thing in there is the, is basically the tablets. Let let me, let me remind you of something. I'm going to say it really fast. When you see these things, the manna, the rod that budded in the tabernacle uh, and the tablets, they're really a picture of God's provisions and man's rebellion God gave the law, the perfect word of God, man rebelled against it and broke it. God gave the provision, manna, man complained and griped all about it. Aaron was supposed to be the leader, that was God's leadership, man rebelled. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of how God has a provision, man rebels, and God takes care of the whole thing by the covering of the mercy seat. So just think about that sometime. You might want to do a study and go to Hebrews 9 and look at that passage about what was in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, watch this, and we'll go really quickly. Verse 10. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister before the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. When the priest put that ark in there and they got the tent ready, and I mean got the curtain ready, and they walked out suddenly. The glory of the Lord came, and a giant cloud, and the glory called the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. It came down, and everybody had to move back. It said the priests could not even stand to serve because the glory of the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, when God brought the people out of Israel, the nation—excuse uh, me—brought brought Israel out of Egypt. It was a pillar. Uh, uh, it was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. That was the glory of God. In Exodus 40, when they originally built the tabernacle, the glory of God came, and exactly the same thing happened. They had to get out because of the glory of God. Can you imagine being there at the day the temple was completed, and they brought the Ark of the Covenant, and the glory of God appeared with such great power that the people couldn't even stand there is a Hebrew word for glory, and it's kabod, and it literally means heavy, like God's really heavy, like he's heavy, man. you know, he's heavy, and that's what it is, God's power and majesty is beyond what you can even imagine, and his glory. Listen, let me show you this, what, what did Daniel, what happened to Daniel when he saw God? He fainted. What happened to Ezekiel when he saw God? He fainted. What happened to Isaiah when he saw God? He said, I am a man of unclean lips. What happened to John when he saw God? He fainted. If Jesus Christ appeared right here, now we would all fall on our faces. He is God. He is the king. He is the ruler. He is everything. And when the temple was set up and that Ark of the Covenant is a picture of where God will dwell among his people, the glory of God came and they couldn't even stand before him. It was so powerful. How should we react to the glory of God? Wow, it's so amazing. We should never take lightly. Now, let me just go quickly on this last part because we, we today, that temple is there, is it gone now, but we're the dwelling place of God. Romans 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. So what should we do? What should we do? How do we respond to the fact that God lives in us? Well, we should be holy people, First, Peter said, because God says he's holy, we're supposed to be holy as well. We're to show his glory uh, in our bodies, uh, bring glory to God through everything that we do. And as Romans 12 says, offer our lives to God. Let me make sure you understand. Offering your life to God is not salvation. Salvation is a gift by faith alone in Christ alone, and you're saved and saved forever. As a believer, you may offer your life to God in service. This has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with your service so that you can bring glory to God. Well, we're going to stop there. This is, this is an amazing thing. They have brought the, the our Ark of the Covenant. They've put it in the temple. They stand back, and suddenly the glory of God appears, and everybody has to back up. We'll see what happens next time. Let me give you quickly some applications. Let's worship our glorious God. The awe and the praise of who he is and what he's done. We, we come together on a Sunday morning as we sing and pray and give and study all our acts of worship. Let's understand his majesty. He is the perfect, holy, righteous God. I think one of the things, I think, I think it was C.S. Lewis or someone else that I, I've read just recently said that we don't, we don't understand the glory of God. We don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand the magnificence of the God that made us that saves us and wants to use us. Understand his majesty. Realize that the ark is really a a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. The gold and the wood, the deity and the humanity, the ark of the the mercy seat is where he is merciful for us. He is propitiation, the satisfactory payment. It's everything. Second, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And then realize that we are the temple of God. So what should we do? Be holy, give glory, offer our lives as those who belong to Jesus Christ. And then last but not least, let's pray for our leaders, our elders and deacons, and the leaders of the different ministry teams and ministries. All of these people have been raised up by God to make an impact for Jesus Christ and to help do the ministry